I was younger, I remember that I shared a room with two of my sisters for a little while. We had bunk beds and a crib. So my youngest sister was in the crib and I had the top bunk and my other sister had the bottom bunk. And so my dad had built this bunk bed and put a bar across the top so that way, you know, people wouldn't fall out, you know, when they're sleeping. But the bar must not have worked real well because somehow I would like slide underneath and fall off the bed. Now, apparently I was a pretty hard sleeper because I don't remember some of these, all right? My parents would come and say, do you remember last night? Nope. So I did. And so my dad decided, well, maybe I need to get a a rope and kind of tie it from the bottom of, you know, the bed to the top of the board and just kind of keep going all the way along so I wouldn't be able to fall out of the bed. It was a great idea, but it still didn't work. Like there was still a couple times that I fell out of the bed. And so anyway, again, obviously, well, I don't know if it made an impact or not. So we'll find out. But anyway, eventually we added on to our house and uh, all of us got our own rooms. And so I got to keep the room with the bunk beds, but I did choose to start sleeping on the bottom. And so on top, you know, maybe I'd sit up there to read or that's where I would play certain things. But on the bottom bunk is where that's where I slept and that's where I kept my stuffed animals because I had stuffed animals. Yes, I had like, you know, the My Pet Monster. I remember that. Um, I had this thing called My Buddy. He was there. I had this bear. I also had a big kangaroo that when you opened up the pouch, that was the place that you could put your pajamas. So that way it was just always there. And so all of us siblings had something like that. And then a bunch of other small stuffed animals as well. And so they were just on the bottom bunk. I don't remember all the details. I really wish I did. But at some point in my early elementary time, my sisters and I must have been roughhousing, wrestling, something like that. And there ended up this big dent in the wall the size of maybe an elbow or a heel. Now, it wasn't a full-on hole. It didn't go all the way through. But man, you could tell that the wall was not flat. And I remember like looking at that and going, what am I going to say? Or what am I going to do? how am I going to tell my parents this? And I decided I'm not. (laughs) You know what? My bed is right up against the wall. And so my stuffed animals changed from being up next to my pillow to all lined up across the wall. And that kangaroo was right in front of that dent. And so every morning when I woke up as quickly as I could, I made sure that was being covered up. I made sure my bed was made. My parents probably thought, man, he's making his bed now. I don't know. But like, that's what I did. I did not want to tell them about this hole. And can I tell you just inside of me the nervousness or the guilt or even the paranoia that I was feeling of, what are they going to say when they find out? Like, how am I going to be punished and what's going to happen here? And so I remember, you know, for hours into days, into weeks, into years. In fact, I successfully kept it hidden until we sold our house. (laughs) because you can't really keep it hidden at that point anymore. And so we moved after my sixth grade year. And I remember my dad just coming in, you know, as we were kind of fixing things up and he just looked at it and he never really said anything. I could tell he wasn't thrilled, but I never really got a big talking to or anything like that. But at least at that moment, I didn't have to hide the dent anymore. And I think about sin and how it causes separation in our lives. Like it causes separation between us and other people. Like even when someone else doesn't know about it. Like in that moment, putting this hole, instead of going and telling my parents, like I lived with this nervousness and what's going to happen. And so there was this wall that was built up, even if it didn't affect everything, but I was still nervous about this one aspect. And sin can be that way when, when we know that we've done something against someone and we don't want them to find out. Even when they don't know, there can be this wall that is being built up, or we can be paranoid of, are they going to find out? And when they do, what's going to happen? 
Or sin also can cause separation when someone does find out. And so maybe I did something directly against someone else and they know, and it's not being dealt with in a good way. Or even when it is dealt with in a healthy way, there can still be some friction that you have to work through. Man, sin causes so much separation. And maybe you understand what I'm talking about. Like even as I say that, maybe there's some words that you've said to someone else or something that you've done that you just kind of have swept under the rug hoping that no one finds it. You've like hidden it in the closet. You've covered it with a stuffed animal. You're like, I hope no one knows about this because as long as, you know, I keep it hidden, it'll, it'll be all right. But that's not necessarily the way you feel at the same time. Or maybe you've been there uh, when there's something at work that's been done or just that secret that you've been holding in. In fact, part of our vacation, my wife and I watched kind of season one of This Is Us. I've watched the entire thing, but she's never seen it. And so as we were watching it, there is a secret that has been held on to by one of the characters for 36 years. And near the end of the first season, they, all this stuff kind of comes out and there's drama, there's tension that comes from it. But there's one moment where one of the persons goes to the person who has kept the secret and just says, I realize even in all my hurt that you have been holding on to this secret for 36 years. And what a burden that must have been. And this other character just begins sobbing. Because sometimes that's what sin does with us. It keeps us separated from other people. And especially when we do something against someone and then they retaliate and then we retaliate and it keeps getting worse and that gap just gets bigger and bigger. Sometimes sin causes separation between people. Sometimes sin causes separation between us and God. And it's not that God has gone anywhere. In fact, he's still there. It's just that we have turned our focus or we began looking at something else. I heard it mentioned kind of like, imagine if we had a pipeline, you know, and all of the water or whatever goes up to him, but imagine there being a clog in the middle. That's what happens when sin is there. That again, God hasn't moved, but our connection with him has been clogged up a little bit. And again, maybe you can imagine that if you've ever had to clean out, you know, your bathtub, like, and there's a whole bunch of hair there and the water's just not going down quite as quickly. Or maybe you've been working out in the yard and so you're just really dirty. And by the end, like the water's up, like covering up your feet and you're like, okay, I got to clean that. Like that's a little bit what sin does. It clogs up this pipeline that God wants us to be able to communicate with him. Because again, sometimes sin causes separation with other people, but it also causes separation with him. And sometimes when people think about God and they look at the Word of God, they're like, man, there's all these rules in place. Like, why does he have all these things? I think it's important for us to realize that the reason that God has set up all of these things is because he doesn't want us to have to experience the consequences of sin. Like, he doesn't want us to have to live in that kind of situation of separation with other people and hurt and betrayal. He doesn't want us to have to live in that separation between us and him. Instead, may we be walking in the garden with him. That's what he desires. And so, the God that we serve is one who is able to fix it. In fact, sometimes sin gets so big that we're like, oh, I wish it could go back to the way it was before. Even in my relationship with God, I wish it could go back to the way that it was before. And the God that we serve is a God that brings redemption. He's a God that brings restoration. He's a God that brings renewal. 
I know those are big words, but when we talk about redemption, the act of redeeming is buying something back. And so when we are given redemption, it is when someone has atoned for a fault or a mistake. Someone has paid the price. Someone has made it okay now. They have rescued us. And that is who our God is, one who has come in to rescue us. Or we talk about that restoration movement and where we're brought back to the former. Something that has been broken down is restored. It has been made new again. It has been mended. Or that idea of renewal, that we have been replenished or that we have been made new. Our God is in the business of making us new. And so in Psalm chapter 51, God, or David writes to a God who is those things, and he knows that. So if you have your Bibles or your tablets, open up to Psalm 51. We'll be there in just a few minutes. But this is actually one of the Psalms that we know the history. We know the background of what was going on when the author penned these words. And so what you need to know is that David, yeah, he's kind of been involved with sin. And maybe there's no kind of, he's been involved with sin. And so if you were to look at Second Samuel chapter 11, it kind of tells about all these details that at this time in the year when the kings went off to war, David stays home. And one night he's walking around on the roof of his palace and he looks out and he sees this woman and she's bathing. He thinks she's beautiful. He sends some servants to go find out who is she and finds out her name is Bathsheba and says, send for her and I want you to bring her to me. And they spend the night together. Well, it's not long after that that she sends word to David that, that I'm pregnant. And now here's the sin. He's got to figure out, what am I going to do with it? Am I going to handle it in the way that God wants? Am I going to try to cover it up? What am I going to do? And he goes for that option. So he decides Bathsheba's husband is actually out fighting in the war, and so he sends word to send Uriah back. And so Uriah comes back, and so David talks with him and asks him different questions, even sends him a gift, and then says, go ahead and go home. He's hoping that Uriah will go home, spend the night with his wife, and the sin will be covered up. But that's not what happens. In fact, Uriah, instead of going home, just simply goes outside the palace and decides to sleep with the servants. Saying, I'm just going to sleep in their headquarters. And David hears about this the next day. And again, his plan hasn't worked. And so he's feeling all these feelings of, oh, no, this is not, uh, you know, it's starting to come out in the open. What am I going to do with this? And so he asks Uriah, why did you not go home? And Uriah simply said, how can I? Like when the Ark of the Covenant with my fellow soldiers are out there fighting, how can I go home to the comforts of my home, to the comforts of my wife? That would be wrong. So David is still trying to figure out what is he going to do, and he decides, okay, plan B, I'm going to get Uriah drunk. So that way he doesn't hold on to his morals, and then he'll go home, and again, all this can just be covered up. And so he does. He gets Uriah drunk, but Uriah still doesn't go home. Again, he sleeps amongst the servants, night number two. So now plan B hasn't worked, and David is still really trying to figure out, what am I going to do? I don't want this getting out to everybody. So plan C, he gets a paper, and he writes a note and he sends it, you know, in an envelope, so to speak, and says, all right, Uriah, I want you to take this back to Joab, who is the commander of the army. And so Uriah goes back and gives it to Joab, and Joab opens it up, and it says, when the fighting is the fiercest, I want you to place Uriah on the front lines, and then at some point, you can pull everyone else back. Joab knows exactly what this is set up to be, but he follows the orders, and Uriah is killed. And so then Joab gives instructions to someone, hey, servant, you run back and tell David all this about the battle and say, your servant Uriah has been killed. And so David hears all this, 
And immediately Bathsheba then finds out and she goes through her uh, time of mourning, the time that was supposed to be there. And as soon as that is done, David marries Bathsheba. Because again, we still don't want to bring the sin out into the public and so we're just going to cover it up and maybe people won't figure it out. And so for months, that's kind of what happens here. And I don't really know kind of the separation that David felt. I mean, do you see servants kind of whispering among themselves who know kind of what's going on? And do you wonder, are they talking about that? Do they look at you any differently? Do you see your new wife pregnant and ever just begin to think about all that happened to get to that point? When you see Joab again face to face, does he lose any respect for you because your whole purpose was to kill someone to get him out of the way? How about separation with God? Were there moments of just kind of whispering in his voice or in his mind saying, this is wrong? Or maybe not just whispering, just yelling, why are you doing this? I don't know. But we do know that months go by. And then in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, God sends a man named Nathan, a prophet named Nathan to David. And so then he tells a story. He says, David, let me tell you a story. There were two men in this town, one who was really rich and another not so much. And this rich man, he had all sorts of cattle and all sorts of sheep, but the, the poor man, he had one baby ewe lamb, and he treated it like a pet. So the sheep would be inside, and it would drink from his cup, and he would use his blanket on the sheep and all those things. And a visitor came into town to visit the rich man, and the rich man chose not to use any of his sheep or cattle, but took that one little ewe lamb and sacrificed it, killed it for the dinner. And David hears this story, and he gets so angry. And he says, whoever did this deserves to die. And Nathan looks directly at the king and says, you are that man. You are that man. And again, sometimes we can read Scripture with our mind, but do you feel it in your heart? Have you ever been in that spot when there is no more hiding of your sin? whether you've been caught or you've chosen, it's time to set it out in the open. And at that moment, like you're just asking, God, can I be forgiven? Like maybe even now you feel kind of that knot in your stomach. And so David immediately, he wants to be forgiven. In fact, his first words to Nathan, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And immediately Nathan says this, he says, the Lord has taken away your sin. So you have been forgiven. But then he does say there are going to be consequences to your choices. So you have been forgiven, but there's still a restoration process, a renewal process that you're going to be going through. And so that is the background for what David writes in Psalm chapter 51. And so if we open up there, the first six verses of his psalm say this. It says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. He says, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and undone what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and you're justified when you judge. He said, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He says, surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. And so as David is writing, he's already been told that he's forgiven, but do you hear him just saying, man, I have sinned. 
Like he owns it. It's not a trying to make excuses, anything like that. He owns what he has done. Oh, if only he could have owned it earlier or it didn't have to be brought out by somebody else. But at least he gets to this point. And as he does this, he then says, God, I need you to work. Like, I need you to show me mercy. The one who is bountiful, full in mercy and grace, will you give that to me? Will you blot out my sin? Will you wipe it out? Will you wash me clean? Will you cleanse me? All of these things. He says, I need you to do this because I can't do it myself. He says, I have sinned against you only. Now, that doesn't mean that you're the only person that, that's hurt in all this because Uriah has been hurt in this, this the nation's been hurt in this, Bathsheba's been hurt in this. But he said, you are the primary focus that I have sinned against. He said, I am so sorry for that. And he says, I understand that you want me to follow you completely. And so that's what he's writing. And then he continues these words in verses 7 through 12. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Do you hear him just continuing to call out? Again, he's not just my knowledge. He's like, God, here is my heart. And he's like, I need you to be the one to make me clean. He talks about hyssop, and maybe you don't know that this is a plant that was used often during ceremonies for purification, and so they would dip this plant in blood and sprinkle it, maybe on people who had been lepers, but now they were clean, or, or places that had mold, but now were not unclean anymore, and so it signified this idea of being clean. And he says, God, will you do this with me, that I may be clean? He says, will you bring back joy into my life? My bones have been crushed. Maybe you've been there too when that secret is the one that just continues to weigh upon you because that's what you're living in instead of God's joy. And he says, I don't want to live that way anymore. Will you bring back your joy that I once got to experience, but I've stepped away from that. I want to experience the joy of your salvation again. He says, will you give me a new heart? Like he said, create in me a pure heart. God, you do that. Make this heart new. Give me this steadfast spirit that I may be able to walk with your desires, that I may be able to walk with your strength. He says, I don't want to be far away from you. Don't take your spirit away from me. I want to be close. And so he says, restore me, renew me, bring me redemption. And it's not because he deserves it, but he knows that God is the one who offers mercy. And so as he says these things, there's a response as well. And so verses 13 through the end of the chapter, he says this, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. And then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you, and then bulls will be offered on your altar. And what David is saying is, here's my response. As you are doing this in me, I will teach others your ways. 
I will use my time, my effort to teach others your ways of what is right. I will sing your praise. I will lift you up because those of us who have received blessings can't keep it in. We must share it with other people. He talks about this idea of giving the right sacrifice. Like if you didn't know better, you might read that verse and go, God doesn't want burnt offerings and why does he make all these things? What it is is he doesn't want me just to go through the motions. Like even here, if I dropped a check in the, in the bucket every single week, but my lifestyle, my heart really aren't his. He's not pleased. And that's what he's saying. He doesn't want me just to go through the motions. God, you really want all of me. And so this broken heart, this broken spirit that comes to you because of my sin, that's what you want. And he then finishes off saying, don't punish Jerusalem because of me. Because of my actions, please don't let the nation feel the consequences of this. And so David's psalm, as we read again, not just for my knowledge, but you read him just saying, I am so, so sorry. Will you please forgive me? He says, bring me redemption, and as I do, I will praise you. Now, it's not one of those deals with God. Hey, if you do this, then I'll praise you. That's not what David's saying. Instead, this is the response of what happens when I understand what God has done in my life. And even today... Like fast forward so many years, God still doesn't want us to live in the sin of con- or in the consequences of sin. Like David had to feel that for a while because he had not admitted it yet, and then when he did, he got to experience the joy that came with the confession. And God doesn't want us to live with our bones being crushed and trying, hopefully, that no one will find it. So I keep putting the stuffed animal in front, or I keep avoiding this person so they won't find out. Instead, he wants us to live in the freedom that comes with truth. In fact, Jesus, in John chapter 8, verse 32, when he's talking about himself and believing in him, he says this, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's the life that God wants all of us to be able to live in is this truth that he offers. Or even in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, if we confess, we say, God, this is what we've done. I am so sorry. He is faithful. He will forgive. He will purify. He will restore us to that which we were before. And in fact, in, in James chapter 5, verse 16, it says this, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Like there's an idea that you and I were even called to confess to other people. And it doesn't mean necessarily coming up on stage and telling everyone, but do you have that one or two people that you can confess to going, this is what's going on in my life. If you have hurt someone, have you confessed to them? Because instead of there being an awkward wall, there can be healing when we do things the way that God wants us to. And so could I just kind of end today thinking about this idea of confessing sin? Like, how do we do it right? How do we experience the freedom that he wants us to live in? First off, I would tell you this. Confessing sin is different than simply saying, I'm sorry. And what I mean by that is, those of you who are parents, you've had kids before, when they've done something, you're like, tell your sibling you're sorry. And yeah, you've heard those words of, I'm sorry. But like, there's no truth behind it whatsoever. But maybe as a parent, you're like, I just need a victory right now. I'll take it. You know, and that's where you're at. Like, that's not how God wants us to go to him just going, I'm sorry. Like, it's a genuine, I have messed up. God, I lay this before you. I would also tell you this, as we're talking about confessing sin, don't just be sorry for getting caught. 
Because again, sometimes we can be sorry that we got caught, but not the sin itself. And that's still not the root of the issue. God wants us to apologize, say, I, am, I messed up. Help me now to go on this other road. So we're talking about confessing. If you want to do it health, healthily, if that's the right word, in a healthy manner, make sure you tell someone else. Because it's easy to confess to God and go, okay, I'm going to change this. But when you don't tell someone else, it's easy to kind of fall back into that, those, that routine again. I remember that from high school camp going and oftentimes, okay, you know, I don't need to fully give my life to Jesus again, but this area, I need to do better. I need to do this. And so I'd think that in my mind, and maybe I'd do it for a little while, but when I didn't tell someone else, it was easy just to kind of get back into the routine of before. So do you have those people that you can share with going, this is who I am and this is what I've done. Will you come alongside and pray with me? And the last thing with this idea of confession is then live differently afterwards. Don't keep going back to it. You know, live this life of redemption, of restoration, of renewal, that people can look at you and go, there is something different about them. And it's not just that I'm living this for you, but the transformation that God does in me because that sin doesn't have its grip on me anymore. I am no longer held by those chains. This is the freedom that I have. That's the life that God wants us to live. Oh. And so even as I'm talking about this, there can be kind of some down sadness as we talk about sin. It can be hard. There's a lot of churches that won't talk about sin, but that's not the point. The point is the freedom that God gives from the sin if we give it over to him. So here for just a couple of minutes as we kind of finish out this sermon time, I want you just to be able to have a time of confession with God right where you're at. I want you to be able just to pray to him and God, say, God, like, I know you know everything. <laughs> like, I've kind of tried to keep this a secret, even though you somehow still know it. But like, maybe there's just some time that God, I don't want this just being a weight upon me anymore. I don't want this being a wall between me and somebody else and so, God, will you help me with this? Maybe during this time, there's also some names that are going to pop into your mind that God wants you to do something with. Like, maybe there's some people that you need to go talk to. That it's not just theory of being able to help this connection again because the separation's happening, but we're going to live the way that God wants us to. And so there will be people after service later today that I need to make some kind of confession with and see if reconciliation can happen. For the next couple minutes, Let's not let sin hold us down, but let's live in freedom. And so spend some moments confessing to God, spending time with him about what is it he wants from you as we go from this point forward. So let's spend a couple minutes with him.
I don't know what God's going to do with what he's been laying on your heart. But I do want you to know this. Like, if we're in Christ, we are not defined by whatever the sin is that may have had a hold on us or even currently has a hold on us. That's the news of the gospel is that we can come for redemption and restoration and renewal, and he wants us to experience that. And so maybe today, though, some of you have never gotten to experience that. Like you've never chosen him. You've never gotten to feel what it feels like to be forgiven of David just saying, this is now out in the open and I don't have to deal with this on my own. And if you want him, if you want Jesus to be your savior, that you follow after him and he's the one that fights for you, then I would encourage you to go to the decision point while we're singing this next song. And maybe for some of you, even as you're praying, you're like, I need someone else to pray for me too. Like not just by myself. And I would encourage you to make your way to the decision point as well. And sometimes it can feel like, oh, but is that like a sign of weakness that I can't do this on my own? Not at all. This is the church coming together to stand together. The song that we're about to sing, like it talks all about how my life at one time I was alone, I was dead, I was lost, and I had no hope. But that's not my story anymore because death was arrested and my life was completely changed and I get to live in his freedom. And so we'll sing that truth, but as we leave today later on, may we live in a way that we get to experience his freedom and people see that in us. If you need to make your way to the decision point, do that as we sing the rest of up. Let's lift up his praise.